0: Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular listeners know, the purpose of the show is to inspire you to be a bit more philanthropic, to act more sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Please subscribe, please share. Makes a huge difference indeed. Today we're talking about children's rights, girls' rights, gender, particularly in emergency settings and within the backdrop of COVID-19. And it is an absolute pleasure to have on the show Rose Caldwell, who is the CEO of Plan International UK. And many of you will know Plan International. It's a huge organization, big global footprint, doing some remarkable work. So without further ado, Rose, welcome on to the Do Want Better podcast.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Excellent. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Why don't we start by hearing a little bit about Plan International and the organization? What is it all about?
1: Sure. Yes. So Plan International, as you have already pointed out, is a is a huge organisation. And, you know, ultimately, it's a charity which works in about 50 countries around the world. Um, And we strive to ensure the rights of children and equality for girls and I think it's quite important to sort of look back into the history of Plan Plan was actually established in 1937 in response to the Spanish Civil War. A British journalist called John Langdon Davies uh, was out reporting from the Spanish Civil War his daughter coincidentally is a volunteer and still comes into our office and tells us all about the history that she's learnt of through her father Wonderful. So he, yeah, Which is amazing. It's, she, it's really it's really fascinating listening to her. But um, so John Langdon-Davis was reporting from the Spanish Civil War and he met an aid worker called Eric uh, McGurridge and together they were horrified with the conditions and the number of children that had been left destitute as a result of the Civil War and they felt compelled to respond to this and so they started providing food and accommodation and education to children whose lives have been disrupted by the war mm. and as time went on during world war Two and after world war Two, pl- plan which it wasn't called Plan at the time, but then spread its work into working with uh, children who were displaced from all over Europe and then working after the war in Europe with children. And so children have always been at the heart of what Plan does. And then in the 50s and 60s, um, they started working in poor countries. And actually, another interesting thing about Plan at that time, during our Silver Jubilee, our honorary chairperson was actually, the first lady Jackie Kennedy. Mm. Um, uh, That's so, pretty you know, cool. It's pretty cool, yeah. Um, I mean, at the heart of what we do, and it really established it, was we 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 um, established a a sponsor sponsored child model where we got people uh, who had resources to sponsor children. And this this model exists to this day and around the world plan support over a million children through this sponsorship. And, you know, we're very clear that the the, the money that the sponsors donate don't go to the actual individual child, but they go to the community in which those children live and um, support the whole community. And so, you know, this was established, you know, in in sort of, after the war and has grown to be a really um, strong connection between uh, sponsors and the children and has really provided huge uh, gain and made a significant difference to many, many people's lives. Many of these children are now grown up adults um, and have really uh, benefited from that support mm-hmm. that they received from all around the world. I guess the, the the continuation of Plan's story was in the 70s and 80s, and a lot of the sort of more um, organisations grew up, in, say Plan U.S., Plan Canada, Australia, all around Europe, and so altogether these parts of Plan came together to make what we have today, which is a large organisation. We have a footprint print in over 70 countries, and uh, with that still with that focus on children, but in the last 10 years we've really increased our focus on girls because we see the impact of inequality on girls and how, if we don't address that inequality, girls need additional support to really be heard and get the opportunities to bring that equality that we know that will make a huge difference uh, to development around the world.
0: Sure, sure. And I've noticed on you have a, a global map of where you operate and some countries are, are, are donor countries, others are countries where you have operations. And others, I think, like India are countries where you, you both class as a donor country and as a recipient of your work.
1: That's correct. And, you know, even here in the UK, we both um, we 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 raise funds for work overseas. But we also do work with girls here in the UK. And that's quite a recent um, sort of uh progression of plan because you know we're talking about gender equality and we know that the SDGs are universal and they apply to all countries and so it would be wrong for us not to look at our own country and the territory in which we operate and to sort of ask questions do we have gender equality here do girls have the same rights here and um, we've done quite a lot of work over the last four or five years and carried out research uh, around the state of girls rights in the UK uh, which have raised quite a lot of alarming um sort of uh facts hmm. uh and we've been able to work in the UK to address things like street harassment that girls face and try and change and influence policy here in the UK so we're a very uh diverse large organization and within that is is huge brings huge strength uh, to what we can do and how we operate around the world
0: yeah to make all of this happen, you need funding. How how is the current climate uh, impacting your um, your income sources?
1: It, we do need funding, and um, it's it, it, it's a very challenging time. But uh, to date, we have through our child sponsors, we have incredibly loyal uh, uh, supporters. I mean, it is humbling. I have to say, mm. to um. Uh, to work with our supporters and donors and to, and, and their loyalty to, to, to the work we do and to the children that they support is phenomenal. So to date, we have been very, um, blessed, I guess, with very strong support. Uh, we have relaunched we a, a, a crisis appeal which has, has been well supported both by individuals, um, by corporates and by some foundations. And actually, across the whole plan network, we, at the beginning of the coronavirus um, crisis, we set ourselves a target of raising uh, €100 million, euros, either mm-hmm. through pivoting existing funds or through raising new funds to make sure that we were really focusing on trying to address this epidemic in all the countries and all the places that we work. And we're about 60% there in in relation to our funding, which has allowed us to reach about 12 million people so far.
0: That's a remarkable figure, 60% uh, 60 of 100. Not, Not bad at all.
1: Not bad. It's not all new funding. A lot of it has been working with existing donors to pivot the funding that they have given, that they had already committed to us. But obviously, we can't deliver it in the same way that we could before. And some, you know, so for example, in education, schools are closed. So how can we work with donors to pivot that funding to make it appropriate and adaptable to uh, deliver programmes sh- during coronavirus? And we've got a great example of that in Ghana where we uh, have a Girls' Education Challenge project, which is funded by the British government. And um, it was it had had TV studios and was able to do broadcasting. And we've been able to adapt this and work with the Ministry of Education to uh, develop programmes that we can now broadcast out to all children around Ghana to make sure that they are still getting education during this time when schools are closed down. So that's just one example of how we've adapted our existing funds to make sure that it is helping us to respond to this crisis.
0: Yeah, no, it's good to be nimble. So who are your partners? Do you have partners on, on a global level? Do you have partners who are uh, with you on the front lines in specific countries?
1: Yeah, again, because of uh, the the nature of plan being made up of lots of different um entities and different bodies around the world we are again very fortunate to have a huge range of partners Um, and you know I think we really value partnership whether it is the very small local NGO that we work with in the country of operation, women's rights organisations or even the local elders in the communities in which we work. These are all partnerships that are absolutely critical to allow us to do our work then at a, at a at a more global level we have you know partnerships with um some fantastic organizations like the lego foundation mm. or unilever and so these corporate relationships um we have a fantastic relationship with AstraZeneca, who has uh, been supporting us for many years so we have many partnerships all sorts uh corporate and governmental um and the again, of course, in the countries in which we operate, we work very closely with the governments of those countries and the local authorities in those countries to make sure that we are working in line with their programs. And, you know, you can't ever go into a country and not work within the framework of that country.
0: Sure, sure. And how are you finding this new reality impacting the work you do on the ground uh, in the global south? What um, What's happening now? Because... A couple of months ago there was a lot of there was i remember one study from imperial college about the impact that this pandemic could very well have in developing countries uh really if you think about refugees uh, density densely populated areas and so forth i can imagine that uh, the challenges are, are going to be even more severe than what we have here in the uk what um what's happening right now on the ground
1: so I think what we're seeing is a very mixed picture across all the different areas in which we work in. Indeed, you know, in Jordan, we've been working in one of the refugee camps called Asraq. And actually, in Jordan, they've had very few cases and none at all in that camp, which is hmm. fantastic. Um, whereas, I mean, I think you, many of the viewers may have seen the report from India yesterday, where the number of cases is just skyrocketing and extremely worrying and scary. Um, I think one of the challenges for us is that in many of the countries in which we operate, particularly the more fragile states, places like Central Africa Republic, there is very, very limited health services. There is very limited testing. There is, you know, very limited data collection. So it's really very difficult to know what the numbers are, so uh, so I think it's a very mixed picture across the different territories. You know, um, with uh, which makes it very difficult. And of course, the different governments in these countries are all responding in different ways, so making it challenging for our staff to operate to get out and about, depending on the on the lockdown. Although we have in many countries worked with the humanitarian sectors in those countries to make sure that um, in effect humanitarian workers get key worker status so that it allows them to go out and and serve the needs of the community and work with the community. And it is always very humbling when we get, you know, videos or uh, feedback from our teams who've managed to get out to some of the most remote places in the world with um, food parcels, uh, messaging about coronavirus hygiene kits and things that the communities need to help them to understand the issues to protect themselves and to ensure that they have what they need to help them through this very difficult period so Mm. yeah it's it's very very mixed and each setting requires different interventions and different um, approaches
0: Mm -hmm. how do you do your interventions do you have a um, do you have your own team your own workforce who are plan international and they're out there in the front lines or is it more about grant making identifying local delivery partners and having them execute on your behalf i mean is there a sort of when, I, when you're mentioning about care packages being delivered to remote areas, I'm sort of visualizing a plane dropping, you know, air drops. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering if that plane would have Plan International written all over it or, or how that no. operates. No. Tell <laughs> no, us a little bit no, about how it that
1: works. So, so basically each of our countries of operation will have their own, um, you know, they have their own national strategy which would have been in place. And part of that natural, national strategy will be to ensure that they are ready to respond to emergencies in their country. So they are, if you like, pre-prepared they have, this, they have this necessary staff and expertise and training in the country. And remember, the majority of staff that we have in the countries in which we operate are national staff. They're from that country, they're from that context, they understand their environments. And so they know when an emergency hits, they understand, you know, the laws and rules of their country and they know how to respond. And so the first thing that we always do in an emergency is we form a gender balanced emergency response management team. And, you know, it is really important because historically humanitarian work has been very male dominated. And for us, it's very important that we uh, have females in those teams so that they can see the challenges that our communities are facing through different lens. Mm-hmm. They conduct a rapid needs assessment as to ensuring that women are included as part of the assessors and that the gender specialists are there to really um, cur- prepare a response plan with gender and child protection issues in the centre of it and in the middle you know really at the heart of what we do they will then identify if they need additional surge support to come in whether it be international deployable staff but that's been challenging in this and we've you know this is where localization and working with local other local um, uh, NGOs has been really critical, so you know whilst we might do the initial assessment, we might do it in conjunction with other local organizations, and we might deliver through them and again, each country is different um, but that sort of gives you, you know, a sense of how we assess the situation, identify what that community needs, what we need to do in that country, how we can best bring our resources to that situation and also we will develop each each country will develop its resource needs and send that out across the global network and we are very one of the things i think that has been really heartening in this um uh, um crisis is how in plan international we declared this is what we called a red alert crisis we Mm -hmm. did that quite early on um and it's the first time ever where the whole organisation has been put into a red alert, which means that we have all been uh, mobilised to sort of focus on addressing this crisis. And so... Uh, you know the teams on the ground are identifying what they need we're working with them closely to 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 try to meet those needs and support them whether it be with technical assistance whether it be with um, you know resources or logistics or whatever the need is we try to work together and so collaboration uh, and coordination is very challenging in a large uh, networked organization. But I have to say that I think that uh, often uh, organizations are at best at a time of crisis, and I think PLAN has responded really well to trying to coordinate yeah. Yeah. A, a large, large organization in this time.
0: It must be incredibly rewarding and to feel part of, of, of such an endeavor.
1: Well, I think it's very humbling,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: I, I, I guess... Uh, For for me, you know, I'm still sat in London and, you know, um, my uh, I think the the heroes are the people in the front line that are out there uh, trying to work out how to support our communities. And if we can play a small part in helping resource and support that, it's it's humbling to be in such a privileged position to be able to do that.
0: Sure. And you're no stranger to this field, right? Now, so, if, if we're looking at your background, you, you used to be the CEO of Concern Worldwide UK. Um, I believe you're currently on the board of Disasters Emergency Committee uh, as well, if I'm not mistaken. But and then you started off in the private sector.
1: I did, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, uh, growing up, I didn't even know what international development work was. I grew mm-hmm. up in a on a farm in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, one of five children. Right. Um, uh, I was just, my, my my We had two girls. Came first, and I think that was a bit of a challenge when you grew up on a farm. But I mean, in many ways, I think it was very good for us because our my dad obviously wanted boys to help him out in the farm, and he had to put up with two girls coming first. But it didn't <laughs> stop. We, we we went out to help him just as if we were boys. Um, but, you know, I suppose for me, I grew up in a country that, that was a conflict, mm-hmm. uh, one where there was, you know, a huge civil rights uh, challenge going on as I grew up in the 70s and 80s in Northern Ireland. And I guess... You know, that probably had quite a significant impact on me as a fairly curious child. I couldn't really work out why those, why our neighbours were apparently really different to us. Which, you know, obviously they were because they were a different religion, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't really work this out. And, you know, Northern Ireland at that time was a very inward looking and quite isolated uh, part of the world. And so, you know, ending up working in the work, you know, I could never have imagined as a child that I would end up doing this. But um, I've been very fortunate. And I I went on to train as a chartered accountant. And I did that because I wanted to travel. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I was very impacted by the 84 uh, famine, Ethiopia famine, live year. And seeing all of this stuff, uh, huge impact. And I wanted to be able to travel. And so, of course, having a qualification and a profession really helped me to do that. And so I did work in the private sector, but I I went off with concern worldwide. Um, all of my colleagues in the private sector thought I was slightly mad <laughs> to go as a volunteer to work as the country financial controller in Burundi. Right. And I, and I have to say, when I came back from that, that was the end of my career in the private sector. I decided I had to work in the not-for-profit sector. Right. Um, and um, when were you? When were
0: you in uh, Burundi? Was this? Um...
1: 1998. Mm. 1998 after right. after the genocide. Right, okay. But the, you know, in Burundi there was and still is a civil war going on there. Um and uh, you know I guess what I saw was just extreme poverty the extent of which I'd never seen before you know working with children who were so malnourished they couldn't stand or walk because they had been living in the mountains and they just you know there was a war going on that they didn't have access to food and I think when. You see that. And for me, the impact was seeing that. I remember going to a feeding centre in the day that we opened it and watching these children, sort of one little boy carrying his brother in. Mm. And it was heartbreaking. And I remember going back a month later and these kids were looked like kids again. Mm. They were playing and they were smiling. And yes, their life's going to be hard. But, you know, it showed that interventions really can work and make such a difference. Um and so you know i i my heart was in international development after that, and um i've been very fortunate to go on and become the um executive director of concern in the u k and then quite recently, actually in September last year, I joined plan
0: mm. was it a very difficult journey making your because I know quite a few people listening to this show are probably. Um, If they're not running an organization, they're they're a lot of times aspiring to run one. And, um, you know, guests like you are, are have the potential to inspire quite a few people who are making that journey themselves right now.
1: I, I, I wouldn't describe it as a difficult journey I would say that you need to you always need to have a bit of luck and I had and when opportunities and I you know my view is it's as important as what you say no to as what you say yes to mm-hmm. and um, I didn't start out and I've never had a great career plan or you know uh, sort of direction but I sort of Broadly knew the direction I wanted to go, and um, and what and I wanted to do something that I was passionate about. And I think you know when I'm talking to my own kids, I'm very clear. Make sure you do something that you believe in, and um, say no to things if you're not sure about them, and um, you know if you if it doesn't feel right. But uh, but but also you need a bit of luck. And I've been very fortunate. I've had some great opportunities, and I've seized them. Uh, when they've come along
0: That's excellent, absolutely do you miss, um, well now that you're here in the UK, but do you miss being in the front lines?
1: Very much so yeah, very much so I mean it's Yeah, and I and and I love being able to go and visit our work overseas because you know when you work in the UK you can and particularly in a CEO role you know you can find that you get a little bit removed from what's happening at the front line and that bothers me it bothers me a lot right. and so it's really important to me that we keep reminding ourselves of what we're doing and why we're doing it and visiting the programs overseas or even you know even watching some of the footage that we get back because at the minute we can't visit our programs it's just so important to really connect with the work that we're doing and remind yourselves why we're doing it and why it's so important
0: mm. you mentioned you know it's, being the ceo sometimes can be a little bit if you have a bit of distance is it um i know i know other people running organizations sometimes find it challenging to get down to the nitty-gritty of what exactly is going on in the front lines because you're high-ranking management person, you show up and people on the ground sometimes may not be as transparent as they as you would ideally want. Is it difficult getting insight of exactly what's going on on the ground?
1: It can be. And I think, you know, when you turn up, um, particularly, uh, you know, and this is one of the things that you know, we turn up and we, you know, I know when I turn up, I'm seen as someone who has a great deal of power. I don't feel like I'm someone who has a great deal of power, but Mm -hmm. apparently I have Mm -hmm. Uh, and very privileged. And so, um, you know, you definitely get a sense of, of, of people wanting to impress you and uh, you know i because i've worked overseas and i've i've been on the front line i i know how it works and so actually for me just trying to to break down those barriers and have proper conversations about what's working well and what's not working well because nothing's ever perfect is really important and so just investing time really talking to staff i think is critical
0: that's great that's good What's keeping you awake right now? I mean, there's a million things going on with this pandemic. What's uh, what is it right now that you're this week, for instance, you're really trying to make sure that you get it over the line?
1: So I guess it, you know I think for most CEOs they will it's um, it's really finding that balance between making sure that we're keeping our focus on our mission mm. and what we're here to do whilst at the same time balancing that with the need to ensure financial stability, you know, because we can't deliver our mission without financial stability, without funding. And it's trying to balance all of these different sort of uh, demands in an environment of great uncertainty. And, you know, whilst we've been very fortunate in that our our sponsors have been very loyal to date, um, you know, the next two years, I think, there's a quite a significant uh, economic recession that is predicted mm. and um i think uh we have to really um, make sure that we're planning and acting uh very carefully to make sure that we we keep, we balance the sort of um our, our financial sustainability along with our ability to deliver and support the work that we do on the ground mm. and so i think that's the thing and i think it'll be keeping me awake more than this week i think it'll be keeping me awake for quite a few weeks to come
0: well you sound you sound remarkably refreshed so for what it's worth uh, you're probably you. yeah no very good very good and um i guess there's no way around it right i mean if you're a ceo the income generation side is just part of the job no matter how you got to where you are whether it's through programs or or development, or what have you, uh, income generation has got to be front and center, right?
1: Absolutely. I yeah. mean, you know, it, you can't shy away from the fact that you that it takes money to to, to, to do the work that we that we believe in. Um, I mean, but part of that is also to make sure that the money that we do have, that we steward it and we spend it uh, effectively. And I think that's really important to me. And that's one thing that I'm focusing a lot on. Are we getting value from what we're spending our money on? Are we spending it on the right things? Is it having the impact that we want it to have? Mm-hmm. And and the answers to those questions aren't always that easy to come mm-hmm. by. Sure. But, um, you know, so there is there's the element of making sure that we generate the income, but then that we spend it effectively. Um, and I think those two things are 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 critical, and, and you know we work very hard to do so. Um yeah. Are um, you
0: are you um you feeling optimistic about the next ten years as we head over <laughs> to the uh, twenty thirty, the target date for the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals?
1: You know, I think to work in international development by nat- nature you need to be an optimist. It is not a sector to work in if you're not an optimist. Mm. So. I am, but I'm concerned. You know, we've recently done a bit of work looking at the impact of COVID, the potential impact of COVID on girls. Um, and, you know, we know that um, at the minute, 743 million girls are losing out in education. Mm-hmm. We know that when a girl misses out in education, they're three times more likely to marry when she's a child. We know that for every year of secondary education that a girl completes a mother completes infant morbidity reduces by five to ten percent, so if all girls completed secondary education, childhood deaths could be halved i mean that's incredible, yeah, and we know that girls are losing out in education. We also know that once education restarts, it'll be much harder to get girls back into education because they will be caregivers. The family's economic environment will be, you know, worse, and they may have to go to work, or they'll be more likely to be forced into marriage. Mm-hmm. We know that the uh, prevalence of gender-based violence is 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 increasing hugely, um, and we know that uh, many many more girls will not have access to contraception, um, and so you know, there are estimates around that by 2030, 13 million more girls are estimated to find themselves in early forced marriages because of this coronavirus. And so I am concerned of the potential of coronavirus to roll back the progress that we have made um, in terms of Gender equality and girls' rights, and and that concerns me, but ultimately I am optimistic because I think that the human spirit is an amazing thing, and I think that there are um, within every disruption, and this is a huge disruption, there comes opportunities, and they, and I think a plan right across the global organisation. We're working very hard to sort of think about how this is changing us and how it can change us. To be better and to be a stronger organisation, to be more agile, to um, to do our work in a different way. So I, so yes, there I'm. There are huge concerns, but there are also, I think, great opportunities for us to change and change the way we work and increase our impact.
0: That is a trend I've been hearing a lot about, uh, just from from guests I have on the podcast and elsewhere. It's about this opportunity that we all have to um to build back better to 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 reassess, take stock of what we've been doing and how things can be um can be approved upon once we uh, we overcome this uh, this hurdle.
1: Yeah. And it, it's gonna be really interesting to see how we respond to it. And I think the organizations that respond to that challenge well will be the organizations that really come out much stronger mm-hmm. in this uh, it, 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 in two or three years' time, when we start to see, hopefully start to see the other side of this,
0: yeah. And there's no, by the way, there's no magic bullet, right? In terms of um, the position for for improving girls' uh, life outcomes uh, in the context of COVID nineteen, are there any particular policy uh, statements or anything like that that you're you're trying to get um, governments to embrace, or is it just about being sensitive to the reality that that um though this is an area we need to be mindful of
1: so i think we're very very uh keen and have been working very hard to make sure that governments and donors all around the world recognise the particular vulnerabilities of girls in crisis. Mm. You know, that they're not because, because, you know, it's really interesting, even in the data collection, uh, it, there's not really any data collection for girls. Girls are children until they each reach puberty and then when they reach puberty, they're almost women. So actually, you know, really our big um, sort of push is to make sure that that there is a particular recognition of the vulnerabilities that girls in crisis face. And we know that they face significant crisis. But what we have set out is what our priority interventions are, which is, you know, we will in all of our work have priority interventions to protect girls from violence, to get them back to school, to make sure that they have access to sexual reproductive health rights, um, that we look at uh, economic security and social protection for girls. And most importantly, that we, listen, we, we, we support girls to give them voice. We, we listen to girls because girls have a lot to say for themselves. But actually, you know, if you look at even in, in, in our own country and in the, in the Western world, have we heard the girls' voices come forward as part of this pandemic saying this is what we need? Not really. So I think it's a real challenge for us. So it's very much about trying to promote the voice of girls and let them speak for themselves because they're more than capable of speaking for themselves. They don't need me to speak for them.
0: <laughs> well, as the father of two daughters, I, I, I hear you. Um, <laughs> what's the key takeaway? A key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode?
1: Well, I think there's two things for me that are really critical. And mm-hmm. I think one of them is the... This is a global crisis, and whilst we're facing, you know, we've had a a dire time here in the UK, and you know, people's lives have been horrendously affected and impacted by COVID-19. That it is a global crisis, and we won't solve this crisis until it's solved all around the world. And I suppose it's really that um, ask to people to to keep that. You know, I think there's there's a real uh, increase in uh people and countries looking inward and it's really to focus on that interconnectedness interconnectedness and global uh outlook i think yeah. it's absolutely critical and then i think the second one is to really raise awareness of the impact that crisis has on girls mm-hmm. you know there is a, and 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 the girls of today are the women of of tomorrow and if they don't have the opportunities now It'll be hard for them to pick those up in future years, and it's really to sort of be aware and be um and support uh the 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 voice of girls uh and listen to what they have to say and recognize that in a crisis it's often girls that are that 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 carry a greater burden than 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 boys
0: yeah very well said very well said rose it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the do one better podcast today thank you so much and to our listeners thank you for tuning in as always and please subscribe please share with others rose caldwell ceo of plan international uk thank you ever so much
1: it's been a pleasure